0: Welcome to C-Diff Spores and More with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C-Diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala.
1: Welcome to the program and thank you so much for joining us today. We thank our sponsor, Summit Therapeutics, for making this special series possible. Summit Therapeutics is a leader in antibiotic innovation and has a clear strategy through new science and philosophy. They are creating new opportunities to become the standard of care for serious infectious diseases. To learn more, please visit their website, www.summitplc.com. This series consists of the keynote speakers from the 8th Annual International CDF Conference and Health Expo. We hope you will enjoy today's show.
2: Dr. Chopra will be speaking to us about a really important and delightful program uh, through the CETA Foundation that our children can get involved with. Her talk is entitled Introduction to Infection Prevention and the Junior Infection Fighters Educational Program. Tina?
3: Thank you, Paul. Uh, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for having me today. It's a wonderful day today and uh, also happens to be Diwali, which is a festival of life. So happy Diwali to all of you. Um, I'm very excited today to introduce this uh, wonderful program that um, the CDIP Foundation started and got me involved. It is a junior infection fighter program and um, the great thing about this program is that we get to work with um, these wonderful uh, infection fighters who are stewards and our future and they are extremely passionate and it's wonderful to work with them. and. Um, it's it's uh, this year has been uh, despite uh, you know what we have seen with the pandemic, working with these uh, children have been a uh, silver lining. So um, uh, I want to thank Nancy uh, for um, being the mastermind behind this program, and also uh, Dale and Maureen who have uh, done an amazing job and partnered and collaborated with me to help develop this program. So, the, the, these junior infection fighters are um, spread out all over the country, and uh, this is just an example and overview of uh, how they are involved in peer education. Um, They do experiments, uh, hands-on experiments with hand hygiene which as we all know is the cornerstone of infection prevention and they start very early on and take uh, these hands-on experiments to classrooms. For example, this is one classroom and you can see um, the CDIP Foundation um, has uh, this activity book which um, was introduced to these um, infection fighters and they disseminate it and take it to the community whether it is a group of um, uh, children going to the temple or going to their classroom and they do hands on experiments with um, glow germ for example here you can see the glow germ experiment this is one of the junior infection fighters introducing the glow germ experiment um, and also introducing the activity book to the to the children and they start very early on uh, through hands on experiments to introduce uh, various aspects of infection prevention Uh, The activity book has core concepts of hand hygiene. It is a fun way to learn about bacteria, viruses. And I tell you, these children are so passionate and they know more than um, a lot of our patients. And they love to learn about nutrition. They love to learn about microbiome, what are good bacteria, what are bad bacteria. They also have activities around dental hygiene, um, vaccination, and now, uh, most recently about covid as well um, which is which is amazing so this activity book has been growing um, throughout the year with the pandemic being introduced into their curriculum as well uh, this is uh, myself i had gone to one of the classrooms to introduce uh, one of these experiments and um, activity books to the to the children and we also d- uh, do experiments to introduce respiratory etiquette to them um uh, so, it is growing and, uh, you know, all these junior infection fighters um, have um, an oath that they have taken around hand hygiene and infection prevention and uh, they are going to keep growing and coming up with more uh, hands-on experiments. I also wanted to take a moment to introduce um, the APEC uh, website that they have int- uh, come up with recently around infection prevention for healthcare professionals. Uh, where. You know, we don't, we talk about hand hygiene a lot, but in the healthcare system, we have to remember the five main, um, aspects of hand hygiene, which is before touching a patient, before cleaning, uh, you know, uh, before any kind of procedure, uh, after any body fluid exposures, after touching the patient, and then after touching the patient's surroundings when you exit the room. And now more so than ever, this is even more important because we are entering into um, the toughest winter that we've all seen given the pandemic. And um, I can't stress more the importance of hand hygiene, not only in the hospital setting, but in the community. As we do our grocery shopping, as we go outside and do our essential uh, activities, uh, hand hygiene is the cornerstone of everything, and it's going to become more and more important. Also, I wanted to show you this web page, which is um, uh, infection prevention and you It has been introduced by apec and um, it is. Uh, it is. Imp- it is. Since EDIF Foundation has a lot about advocacy, I wanted uh, to show this to you because it has. Um, a lot of uh, information for patients and um, also uh, empowers patients um, to learn more about their health. So this would be a great resource. Also, uh, it has a great um, uh, program around antibiotic stewardship because infection prevention, uh, I think, is married to stewardship, and uh, we have to talk about stewardship, and we do a lot of stewardship activity um uh, and and education for our patients. Um, this website introduces the ABCs uh, for patients. Uh, for example, the for A is ask if those antibiotics are necessary. Uh, what can I do to feel better? B is bacteria and viruses. So to keep in mind that antibiotics don't kill viruses, they only kill bacteria. And whether taking all the antibiotics exactly as prescribed is C, completing the course. Um, So, you know, all of these, um, I think, are very important tools that are empowering, can empower our community, and they have also um, going to uh, be, you know, they they will be a very important aspect of the Junior Infection Fighter Program as well. Moving forward, I want to switch gears here, and I want to um, talk about the 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 COVID pandemic, uh, as you are all familiar, it uh, hit us very hard in Detroit. We had a huge peak in uh, April as well as May, and then uh, again we are seeing another uh, peak now. But I want to, since we are talking about CDF, I want to share my experience at my hospital. I ended up publishing this work in emerging infectious diseases in MMWR. And uh, we looked at patients who had COVID and C. diff uh, co-infections. And these were nine patients during this time. These were mostly elderly. And look at how our C. diff rate went up between March and April from 3.3 to 3.6. And these patients were um, interesting, you know, and their outcomes were very interesting. There were nine patients and four of them ended up dying. Um, The other four went to an LTAC and one went to hospice. So pretty much five died out of them. So they were very severe to present with. They were on multiple antibiotics and um, they had extremely severe diarrhea. And so this case basically, case series, uh, highlights the importance of judicious use of antibiotics, talking about stewardship. And also, now more than ever, during the pandemic, we must remember how we have to use our antibiotics. Um, also, it, it highlights the importance of good stewardship in our elderly population and integrating the use of antibiotic stewardship in our day-to-day uh, lives is, and in the community is so, so very important. The last but not the least, I want to highlight that how symptoms of CDF can complicate diagnosis of COVID. COVID can also present with diarrhea, with GI symptoms, and they should be both considered as diagnosis in patients who are coming with diarrhea during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so those are the important things that I wanted to highlight with this. Uh, I would like to um, thank you. Thank you to the CDF Foundation, to Nancy, and the entire team for having me.
2: Tina, thank you so much. That was really, uh, really helpful. I appreciate the COVID-19 coverage and also just such an exciting program, engaging our kids. Um, You know, I know in my house, one of the things that my kids looked at me when the whole COVID pandemic started was that they've been practicing appropriate hand hygiene, as you know, from when they were growing up. So there wasn't much of an adjustment for them, but really sort of broadening, you know, not a lot of people live in the homes that we live in, and we have to sort of apply the knowledge that we have so that people can protect themselves both from C. difficile but from other infections as well. And I know Eric DeBerkey alluded to that as well. Now um, shifting gears, we have uh, Dr. David Lyerly. Uh, David is the co-founder and chief science officer of Tech Lab Incorporated, and David's talk is entitled Closteroidous Difficile Infection, and Inflammatory Intestinal Disease. David, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
4: Thanks so much, Paul. It's great to be here. Thanks to the CDF Foundation also for your kind invitation to participate in this 2020 Expo. And I also want to uh, thank Nancy for all your hard work, your dedication to the Foundation. Last year, there were hundreds of thousands of cases of CDI in the United States and in Europe tens of thousands of people died from this infection. The healthcare costs probably are running in excess of in billions of dollars. CDI now is the most common hospital-acquired infection. And it's mainly because uh, from some of the things we've heard earlier today, because this organism forms very hardy spores. These spores are very difficult to kill. Keep in mind that a single patient who has CDI is going to shed millions of spores each day. And these spores are going to be spread throughout healthcare facilities. Variants of this organism continue to appear. Ribotype 027 probably is the most well-known variant. It uh, produces higher levels of toxin. It uh, produces higher levels of inflammation in patients. Plus, importantly, it's resistant to fluoroquinolones. There's also now a variant in Asia, ST37, that only produces toxin B, and it's causing outbreaks, especially in China. So we need to continue to strongly encourage antibiotic stewardship to try to minimize the appearance of these new variants. So basically, CDI is now being seen around the world, and it's become a global disease. Okay, here's the definition of CDI, and you'll hear this basically from several speakers today, but this is from the 2016 ECMED guideline. Some of the panelists today have helped formulate these guidelines. The definition, CDI, is defined by diarrhea alias, toxic megacolon in combination with evidence of stool toxin or toxigenic C. diff, and there is no reasonable evidence or another cause of the diarrhea. Pseudomembranes are diagnostic. Relapse or recurrent CDI, which you'll hear a lot about today, probably is the most challenging part of CDI. Up to 25% of patients who have CDI are going to relapse, and they can relapse multiple times. You've already heard from some of the survivors and their stories about patients to relapse multiple times, and of course, Of course, the health of the patient is going to dramatically decrease when this happens. CDI often is characterized by an intense neutrophil infiltration. This probably happens in most cases of CDI, and for this reason, CDI often can be described as an inflammatory diarrhea. There are a variety of tests that are available as diagnostic aids for CDI. There are immunoassays for toxins A and B. Immunoassays for GDH and NAT assays, nucleic acid amplification tests for the toxin genes. Each of these different types of tests offer advantages, but please keep in mind that each also has limitations. For example, immunoassays for toxins A and B have higher positive predictive values than GDH or NAT testing, but they probably have lower sensitivity. GDH immunoassays do not differentiate between toxigenic and non-toxigenic strains in hospitals. Even so, GDH can be an excellent biomarker for the organism. GDH provides high negative predictive values for screening out patients. NAT assays detect the toxin genes, and they offer that very high exquisite sensitivity. But this high sensitivity may result in overdiagnosis of CDI. And this overdiagnosis can occur because many hospitalized patients become carriers of the organism. For these reasons, ECMED guidelines and those from IDSHA provide recommendations for algorithm testing. This uh, gives you a higher level of accuracy. These algorithms include combinations such as GDH followed by toxin testing, NAT testing followed by toxin, and even combinations of all three types of tests. If institutional guidelines are implemented that basically enrich for the detection of CDI and diagnosis of CDI, then the IDSA SHAE guideline includes the use of NAT testing as a standalone test. This approach will actually improve the accuracy of any of these tests, whether they're used singly or in combination. Importantly, not all of these tests perform equally well. Any of these tests can vary from company to company. Cause of quality and performance. For example, how well the analytes are stabilized in the test diluent is a main factor. How cleanly the tests perform is another factor. These types of things are what make a difference in the test performance. There are a number of challenges for diagnosing CDI. Importantly, the presence of a toxigenic strain does not always equal disease. There will be times, for example, in mild cases, when the disease may resolve on its own and antibiotics may actually not be needed. There can be co-infections in which C. diff is simply a bystander organism and not causing the diarrhea. Co-infections have been reported, for example, with norovirus and bacteria such as Campylobacter. It's critical that the diagnosis is accurate. If a patient really has CDI and is not appropriately treated, the patient can develop colitis. CDI continues to be a primary issue in elderly patients, but as you've seen earlier today, there are significant numbers of community acquired cases. Variant strains continue to cause outbreaks and There are new blood and fecal biomarkers that can help us assess the patient's condition and how severe the CDI is. But because of the challenges of diagnosing CDI, algorithm testing can help improve the accuracy. The uh, severity of CDI can be defined by inflammation. Inflammation plays a key role in this disease. Uncontrolled host inflammation is being reported and more and more types of diseases, and I think that CDI falls right in line with this. White blood cell counts have been used for a number of years to help categorize the severity of CDI, and I've listed some of the numbers in the table. Typical counts will be in the range of about five to 11,000. In mild to moderate CDI, counts are typically less than 15,000. When it gets to be severe CDI that is uncomplicated, cell counts are higher than 15,000. In severe CDI that is considered complicated and associated with hypotension, shock, alias, megacolon, the white blood cell counts will be greater than 15,000. In general, the more severe the CDI becomes, the more likely you will see an increase in white blood cell counts, lower serum albumin, and intestinal biomarkers will increase. In addition to the white blood cell counts, we can use intestinal uh, biomarkers of inflammation. The one that's been used the most for CDI is fecal lactoferrin. This is a glycoprotein present in the secondary you know, granules of fecal leukocytes. And when the white cells migrate into the lumen of the intestine, they lyse, lactoferrin is released. It can be measured quanti- uh, qualitatively, simply looking for an increase over background levels but it can also be measured quantitatively to follow patients during the infection. And there have been several studies that show that, one, fecal lactobarine correlates with toxin positivity rates and with white blood cell counts. Two, fecal lactobarine and calprotectin, which is another biomarker for intestinal inflammation, are higher in CDI patients than in patients who are negative for C. diff or in patients colonized with non-toxigenic strains. Three. There's a direct correlation with patients who have toxin in their stool. These patients have higher levels of fecal lactoferrin and calprotectin than patients who are negative. And in the fourth bullet point, patients in long-term healthcare facilities uh, who were infected with Robotype O27 had higher levels of toxin, higher levels of organism, and higher levels of fecal So the graphs on the right are representative of these findings, and they show that fecal levels correlate with white blood cell counts and the presence of toxin, and it can be used to assess mild, moderate, and severe CBI. All of these results continue to, to show the important role of inflammation in CBI. This, uh, this is an article by L. all, et al., and it points to an important association of host inflammation with severity. In this study, CBI was defined as a positive toxin test, at least three bowel movements a day, diarrhea, toxic megacolon, galactamine, and or death. Patients were given a severity score based on the Heinz VA severity score definition, and then shown in the panel on the right, some of the panelists were key and instrumental in developing this severity score measurement. In this study, the levels of fecal lactopera were higher in patients who had a severe Heinz score. The fecal bacterial burden, which they determined by TCDB, Detection, detection of the uh, toxin B gene by PCR did not really correlate with the severity score. I will say, however, that I think the interpretation by these authors would have been strengthened if they would have used bacterial counts. But instead, what they did was determine this by uh, PCR, uh, quantitative PCR work, and they determined that the high score and leukocytosis correlated with more severe disease. So the conclusions were that the intestinal inflammation determines clinical severity and that prolonged CDI may actually be caused by sustained host inflammation I want to briefly describe a 2017 study by Yu et al. where they examined cytokine profiles during CDI. Uh, The study included cytokine profiles in CDI patients, some of whom had severe disease, and also those profiles in healthy persons. And their results showed that interleukins were elevated and upregulated. Interleukin-8, interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, 17A, 16, all of these were upregulated in patients with CBI. All of these cytokines are somehow involved in the inflammatory process in the cascade. Also, um, they noted that interleukin-2 and interleukin-15 both of which are involved with the host natural response to infection or associated with poor prognosis in these patients. Uh, As an extension of this study, they also look at the cytokine profiles of peripheral blood mononuclear cells that were treated with toxin. And the crystalline structure of toxin A is shown Uh, on the right-hand side, toxin B is going to look similar to that. They have a a similar structure. But the blue portion is where the active site is actually located. Both of these toxins are glucosyl transferases, and both have the ability to inactivate the cellular uh, cytoskeletal system. This is what actually kills the cell. And here are their observations. Cytokine profiles that were seen with purified toxins A and B, Overlapped with those seen in CGI patients, although there were some distinctions. Toxin A was more inflammatory than toxin B. When the glucosyl transferase site was inactivated, the pro inflammatory responses decreased, and that shows the important role of this very unusual activity in eliciting inflammation. The response in the peripheral cells caused by the toxin was characteristic of the responses that you see when inflammasomes are formed. Inflammasomes stimulate expression by uh, cytokines. They are uh, multi-protein oligomer complexes that are directly involved in triggering inflammation. The authors noted that the responses seen with purified toxins were not identical, To the responses seen in CDI patients, but they were assuming that was because these were in vitro responses versus those seen in in, uh, the host condition, probably not truly reflective or totally accurately reflective of CDI. But importantly, these studies strengthened the role of inflammation in CDI. And I also want to I uh, just mentioned there has been a more recent study, a 2020 study by Dieter Lee et al, and they were using a mouse model to look at CDI. and their work continues to support the systemic, the role of systemic biomarkers of inflammation as indicators of severe disease. So now we can take a look as we learn through some of these things we're, we're able to put some of the key points together regarding inflammation during CDI. First, we have the infection with toxigenic C. diff. The organism actively growing in the large intestine, and it releases toxins A and B. The toxins directly damage mucosal cells. This triggers an influx of neutrophils. Inflammasomes are formed, and they become activated. Neutrophils are also activated. They express increased levels of protective molecules in their granules. This is all part. Of the defensive mechanism by the host. The activated neutrophils are also going to release cytokines. They also move into the intestinal lumen via diapodesis. That basically means these white cells are squeezing through the cellular junctions to get into the lumen of the gut. Once there, that's where they undergo degranulation as part of their defensive mechanism. So now uh, I want to end up with some conclusions. When a patient develops CBI, inflammation very often is triggered. This occurs through the direct action of the toxins on the mucosal, uh, the intestinal mucosal. Remember, these toxins have the ability to kill mucosal cells directly. So there's also the stimulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines and what appears to be a very important role of inflammasome signaling. Once this inflammation, this inflammatory cascade is initiated, the host response becomes extremely important, plays it a very important role in helping to clear the disease. It also plays a role in how severe CDI can become. The inflammation will help control the CDI, but if it's uncontrolled, it can make the disease severe. And this probably plays a key role in how easily and possibly how often relapses occur. So in order to achieve protection against CDI, we need to get the gut microbiome reestablished. You'll hear a lot about this today, but we need to have a good protective antibody response along with the cellular response. Hopefully it's going to be controlled. All these are involved in protecting us. And as we learn more about inflammation in CDI, we're going to learn more about why some people are refractory to this disease, to why there's such a wide spectrum of intestinal disease With CDI. So, again, thank you for allowing me to participate in the CDF Expo. Please stay safe and healthy.
0: We hope you are enjoying listening to the keynote speakers of the 8th Annual International Virtual C. diff. conference and health expo. Sponsored by Summit Therapeutics. Learn more about how Summit Therapeutics is advancing innovative therapies. Visit the Summit Therapeutics website at summitplc.com. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Handwashing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Handwashing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on handwashing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org.
2: This is Stuart Johnson. I'm taking over from Paul for hosting. Thank you again, Paul, for doing a great job and we're right on time, interestingly enough. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce the next speaker. Uh, Dale Gerding has been my mentor and colleague for over 30 years. He is a research physician at Edward Hines' Junior VA Hospital and previously a professor of medicine at Loyola Northwestern and the University of Minnesota. And I say previously because Dale is retired and has been so for close to 10 years. Really, Dale? I'll let you take it from here. Uh, thank
5: you, Sue, for the kind words, and um, and thank you, Nancy, for allowing me to talk about my favorite topic, which is uh, non-toxigenic uh, Clostridioides difficile. And some of you are probably wondering, uh, what is it back from? Well, it's had a checkered history of development, and I'm I'm very delighted to say that uh, development is now back on track and. I couldn't be uh, happier. I think it's important for you to pay attention to one of my um, disclosures here, and that is the disclosure on uh, on patents, because I do hold the original patents for the use of non-toxigenic and uh, difficile. The background uh, for um, for this development of non-toxigenic C. diff and specifically the strain M3 is shown here. And the patients uh, were found to be naturally colonized with non-toxygenic strains of C. diff in the hospital, and they were found to be protected from C diff infection. Uh, it turns out that NTCDM3 was the most frequent of these isolated strains of, of non-toxigenic C. diff uh using a very sensitive restriction in the nucleus analysis typing system. And when we discovered these strains in patients, we took them into the laboratory and we took the three most commonly isolated strains and uh, put them into the hamster model where they demonstrated protection against uh, known epidemic toxigenic strains of C. diff and then subsequent to that, favorable phase one and two clinical trials were done. And I'm going to work you through the preclinical and clinical developments leading up to um, where we are today with non-toxigenic C. diff. So shown on the horizontal axis are the various strains of non-toxigenic C. diff uh, as defined by the REA typing system. And you can see that there's Just about as much diversity in non-toxigenic strains as there is in toxigenic strains. And you can see also that in terms of frequency of isolation of these strains, M3 was by far the most common but M23 and T7 strains were also quite commonly isolated. This is just a description of the basically first Um, experiment to try to demonstrate prevention of C. diff infection in the hamster model. This is a fatal model in the hamster uh, and the way the study was designed is we first determined the toxigenicity of various uh, toxigenic strains in the hamster model, established a minimum infectious dose of 100 spores, and then uh, set up these experiments by making the hamster susceptible two infection with uh, administration of clindamycin orally, just a single dose. Then on, uh, on day two, in the control page, uh, hamsters, we uh, did nothing, but in the uh, active hamsters, we gave them about 500,000 to a million scores of non-toxigenic strain M3. Uh, and then on day five, challenged them with the toxigenic strain uh, B1, uh, and um, and you can see that the control animals both expired at 48 hours, whereas all of the 10 hamsters given M3 were alive out to 99 days. Now we took this experimental data and repeated it, and um, we showed that in, um, in multiple different challenge strains uh, B1, J9, and K14, and protective strains M3, M23, and T7, that if we look at the um, clear bars, uh, this is the number of animals involved in experiments, so were 10 in each experiment. The black bars are the uh, number of hamsters that became colonized with non-toxigenic strains, and in the gray bars are the number that were protected from infection uh, with the uh, appropriate or uh, toxigenic strain in in each of these uh, vertical columns. So you see, for example, with M3, that one animal uh, did not get colonized, uh, and when challenged with J9, uh, that animal was also not protected. And you see there are a few exceptions to this with M23. For example, one animal was colonized, but uh, was not protected uh, when challenged with B1 and similarly with K14. But in general, uh, colonization with this non-toxigenic strain of C. diff it produces the protective effect that we're trying to achieve uh, with non-toxigenic C. diff. Now some of you might be asking, uh, does this work? with the 027 strain, which is also uh, determined to be a BI strain. So we're showing here that the BI1 strain, which is the historic strain from the 1980s of 027 uh, and BI6, which is the more recent epidemic strain of 027 from the 2000s, were used uh, as challenge strains and protection with M3, again, correlated with colonization, as you can see for both BI1 and BI6. However, for um, T7, which was an alternate uh, non-toxigenic strain, it was highly effective, 10 out of 10 animals protected uh, against challenge with BI1, the historic strain, but the epidemic strain resulted in only about 50% Protection of, uh, of these animals with T7. And again, I think for the first time we were able to see a d- discrepancy between two different non toxigenic strains, M3 and T7, in protection against a toxigenic strain, in this case, uh, BI6 or, or 027 or NAP1, the epidemic strain. And it appears that uh, all non-toxigenic strains are not equal in terms of their ability to protect. Now, this uh, strain was taken into phase one safety studies by a company called Lyroflurma, and in the safety volunteer trials, volunteers uh, who were young, 18 to 45, were given single and multiple doses uh, of M3 spores in liquid. Uh, There were no safety signals, basically. And actually, in these patients uh, or subjects, uh, M3 showed up in the stool only at the highest dose, which was uh, 100 million spores uh, given twice a day. But the volunteers who were over the age of 60 were pre-treated with vancomycin to simulate uh, treatment of a C. diff infection. They were given this for five days. And that was followed by NTCD M3, given every day, uh, all the way out to 14 days. And the dosages were 10 to the 4th, 10 to the 6th, and 10 to the A spores. So this is 10,000, a million, and 100 million spores a day. And th- again, there were no serious adverse events, no subjects prematurely discontinued to uh, study drugs. Now the clinical trial of phase two, which was conducted again by Viral Pharma, used again the oral liquid formulation of these purified spores, which are uh, grown under good manufacturing practice in a a laboratory. And um, the strain selected was originally isolated from an asymptomatic patient, and it's the same strain that was used in the um, initial Phase one trials. These strains lack all the genes for expression of C. diff toxins, Uh, They colonized humans without causing symptoms based on our observed patient studies. And they had undergone no genetic manipulation, that is, uh, these are natural strains. And the M3 uh, is not a GMO product, so if you're uh, concerned about genetically modified organisms, this is not one of them. And they are circulating today in hospitals. And the phase two study was the first to employ NTCDM3 in patients with CDI. So the study objective initially was to show safety and tolerability because uh, obviously this uh, strain had never been put into C. diff patients previously. But there were three secondary objectives. One was to characterize the stool colonization with NTCDM3 largely because that is an indicator that the patient is likely to be protected. And this was done very simply at the, after the administration period, if you could detect cdm 3 in the stool culture at any time after the end of uh, administration, it was considered to be evidence of colonization uh, out to week six. Um, and a secondary uh, outcome of the study was also the recurrence rate of C. diff infection in these patients. Uh, as defined, as you can see, by greater than or equal to three unformed stools. Uh, positive C. diff stool assay, at this time about half the patients were having toxin assays and half of them were PCR assays. And uh, this was measured after day one, day one being the uh, first day after the end of antibiotic therapy through week six. And then finally, there was a third secondary endpoint, which was select a dosage regimen for future studies. This so is the study design. The, the patients uh, begin with uh, a CD onset. Uh, they are then treated with antibiotics, uh, vancomycin or metronidazole in these studies. And then the study drug begins the first day after the end of antibiotic therapy with either 10 to the fourth uh, spores per day for seven days, 10 to the seventh spores per day for seven days, or 10 to the seventh spores per day for 14 days, and then the placebo alarm. And at week six, they're evaluated for recurrence, but they're followed up all the way out to six months or or to week 26. Uh, And the results of the study, I'll just summarize quickly. Um, here are the results of the clinical C. diff recurrence. You can see that the placebo patients uh, had a recurrence rate of 30% whereas all non-toxigenic C. diff patients had a recurrence rate of 11%, highly statistically significant, p value of .006 and the dosage that was most effective turned out to be 10 to the 7 spores uh, given daily for 7 days. Uh, where the recurrence rate was only 5%. We used an alternate uh, definition for a recurrence, which was did the patient receive antibacterial treatment for C. diff infection? The results were very similar. The placebo group had a 33% recurrence rate, 14% for all non toxigenic C. diff. And again, the um, preferred dosage was 10 to the 7th uh, spores for seven days. Now this is a complicated slide demonstrating uh, culture of the stool of these patients, uh, which was done all the way out to six months. And shown in the orange bars are a detection of toxigenic strain, as you can see in the upper left placebo group, uh, where most of the patients have toxigenic strains uh, recovered following treatment. And you can see D1, day one is the first day Uh, of these patients uh, after antibiotic therapy. And if you go to this uh, upper right column, you can see that the 10 to the fourth dose of non-toxigenic C. diff colonized about two-thirds of the patients, but about a third of them still were colonized with a toxigenic strain. And uh, down in the lower left quadrant, you see that the majority of colonization uh, with 10 to the seventh spores for seven days was non-toxigenic. And in the, in the lower right, the 14 day administration did not seem to increase the colonization uh, rate, nor did it increase the persistence. And you can see in the uh, end of the seventh group in the lower left that the longest colonization with this organism was about 22 weeks. In contrast, some patients, even at uh, six months, still have toxigenic C. diff. I detected in the stool, probably explaining why we still see very late recurrences of of C. diff in some patients. Now, we analyzed the data on the basis of did the subject get colonized with non-toxigenic C. diff, and when we did that, we found that the colonization uh, was really predictive of protection. So. Recurrence rate in the patients who were colonized was only two of 86 percent. Two of 86 patients are only about two percent. So again, just as we saw in the hamsters, if colonization could be detected, it correlated with protection. So, in summary of this study, um, the safety profile was really good. Uh, One week of dosing appeared to be sufficient. You didn't need two weeks. The higher dose of 10 to the 7 spores was more effective than the lower dose of 10 to the 4 spores. Um, And CDI recurrence was really reduced by any dose greater than 50% and by greater than 80% for the most effective dose in this study. Um, It appears that this might be an ideal complement to even a vaccine should it be developed. Uh, because it's very rapidly acting and bridges that gap between um, a vaccine administration and efficacy which usually takes a month or so. So in that respect, uh, you could provide immediate protection which is transient because colonization is not permanent but we think that's probably a good thing because there's no permanent alteration of the microbiome uh, with this approach. Well, there's two types of C. diff prevention, we've been talking about secondary prevention which is prevention of recurrent C. diff, either first recurrence or multiple recurrence. Uh, But there's also primary prevention which is prevention of of patients from getting C. diff when they're in a high-risk situation like taking antibiotics. And I just wanted to wrap up by... Uh, putting up a slide that we've been using for about 25 years about pathogenesis of the C. diff infection in which patients uh, usually become hospitalized or healthcare exposed, are exposed to C. diff spores and antimicrobials and that combination either results in them becoming asymptomatically colonized with C. diff or developing C. diff infection. And based on Lorraine Kine's work in the New England Journal 20 years ago, we feel that the presence of um, antibody either against toxin A or B, in her case, toxin A, is what um, protects these patients and allows them to become asymptomatic, colonized rather than C. diff infection. So for prevention of, uh, of C. diff uh, primary prevention, we would anticipate that um, a patient would be hospitalized or healthcare exposed and be- receiving antimicrobials, probably elderly, high risk for C. diff. You could give them non toxigenic C. diff every day during and after their antimicrobials and put them into the upper right uh, side of the slide where they become asymptomatically colonized with non toxigenic C. diff. And this would uh, result in them being protected against infection from uh, wild type toxigenic C. diff and prevent them from uh, acquiring C. diff. So this primary prevention application has never been done in patients, but we're looking forward to uh, experimental trials that will try to see if we can prevent C. diff in the first place in these patients. The first trial that will likely be done uh, with non-toxigenic strain M3 is the follow-on trial to the phase 2 that's already been done. And this would be uh, for C. diff infection patients to be treated, this time with metronidazole, vancomycin, or fitaxomycin, to be administered uh, non-toxigenic C. diff spores probably for 7 days at a high dose of 10 to the 7th a day. Uh, get the patient colonized with these non-toxigenic strains and then prevent them from, Either acquiring a new strain or their or their old strain and prevent them from developing C. diff infection. So, what happened to non-toxigenic uh, C. diff M3? Well, the study sponsor, VirPharma, was purchased by Shire in January of 2014, just as the phase two trials were ending, and Shire elected not to pursue further development of uh, VP20621 since they were interested in orphan uh, drugs, and this was not an orphan drug, and they did not have experience with uh, developing uh, gastrointestinal or infectious disease agents, so um, they did did not pursue development, and the exclusive license agreement with Shire was then terminated in 2016, and I'm just delighted to announce that a new exclusive licensee. Destiny Pharma PLC, located in Brighton in the United Kingdom, will acquire the non-toxigenic C. diff M3 program and sponsorship of the FDA's IND in November of 2020. And I'm looking forward to the resumption of development of what I think is a potentially very uh, useful um, biotherapeutic agent in our armamentarium against C. diff. And thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to present.
1: Thank you for joining us today. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, clinical trials, protecting the gut microbiome, Diagnostics and Environmental Safety Worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections, prevention and treatments, please visit the C. diff foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org. Clinical trials in progress. Help them to help you to help others. We send out our well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness-draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day.